Hello, I'm Scott, the CEO of Calmio, and welcome to season two of Agency of Change. It's great to be back with you, and I am joined by my co-host, Head of Strategy at Calmio, Brock Fisher. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's great to have you back with us. Now, let's get right into it. We're a podcast that aims to showcase excellence and best practice in residential real estate in Australia. And with that in mind, I'm pleased to welcome our first guest for season two. It's uh, Lauren Staley, Managing Director of Infolio. Morning. So Lauren, we're, we're super keen to have a chat with you because um, this is kind of the first time we've dived into some of the buyer's advocacy piece in particular. Um, so I think there's like a whole bunch of ground we can cover, but just to kind of go back to the start, how did your business get started? Where did all this kind of come from? Um, that, that is a good question. Um, I was, well, I started as a cadet property manager. <laughs> so I, I, I've sort of started, gone through the whole ranks of real estate, cadet property management, and then I started working in sales. And it was through um, working in sales that I met someone who had a business that was buying just investment properties for people. And it kind of made me realise that there, there was no representation for buyers, right? You could buy an investment property using someone to guide you, but buyers in general just didn't have anyone looking after them. And I, I think there were a couple of small, small sort of boutique companies at the time when I started, which was sort of 13 years ago. But there was very, very little, um, very little agency out in the marketplace representing buyers. And it was just that I saw a need that, that buyers needed representation. And it was from there that um, Infolio Property Advisors was, was born. And, and initially with the, the core focus being to look after investors, because I'd just seen that model work. Um, and then it, it organically grew to have a, you know, we're, we're very strongly looking after the home buying market as well now. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I think that the thing I find fascinating is if we look at, you know, really big mature markets like the U S mm. and perhaps to a lesser extent, the UK, there are, there's an agent on both sides of the transaction. But why do you think that's so different here historically? Oh, uh, do you know what? It's probably the bane of my existence. And it's one of the things <laughs> that I bring up when I sit down with a client, I'm like, this is the most inequitable transaction you will ever get. It's the biggest amount of money you're going to spend, arguably, you know, and it's the only time one person is represented professionally and the other is not. So, um, we're just bit backward in Australia, to be honest. We've not advanced in property very much at all. We're doing the same things we've done year on year. There's very few people doing anything differently. Two people are too scared to change. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I just guess that, I mean, we're seeing a little bit more um, progress now, but, but it's very, very hard. And even if you look at the way real estate, a traditional real estate agent looks, they're only now being quite accepting of a, a buyer's agent. They didn't want to deal with us, you know, because they, they, <laughs> they had had it pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're having to work a little bit harder on any transaction because they've got someone representing the buyer. The buyer's being more protected. How does engaging a buyer's agent work? Like, what, Are the costs similar to, to a traditional sales transaction or what? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I can give you a bit more depth on that. Everyone's got different models. Um, so traditionally, a buyer's agent would charge a client a percentage of the purchase price. At Infolio, we don't do that because I think it's really counterproductive to the client knowing we're in their corner in a negotiation. So we're fee-for-service. Um, but it is scaled, right? So the more you, it's based on a percentage of, and a scaled percentage. So the lower you are, the higher the, the percentage, the, the higher you are in budget, the lower the percentage. And we've sort of just got some minimums that we broadly use. But I mean, at Infolio, we sort of think every client's quite unique and different and we try and make things quite bespoke and to meet with their specific requirements. 
Um, but yeah, it's a fee for service. We take a commitment fee up front and the balance is not paid until we've purchased the client a property. So ultimately the level's on us to get the job done before we've paid the bulk of the fee. And do you offer like, I guess, a traditional selling service or a resale service at all? Or do you, do you link with others to provide those? Yeah, no. So we, we always act as the advisor. So we are finding that a lot more of our clients now are looking to us for vendor advisory. So we don't sell real estate, but we can engage an agent. We can review the documentation. We can guide the client through the process. Um, and that can be done in a number of different ways, either, um, whereby the client is paying us independently. So a consulting fee to be part of the process. Um, that's probably less common. Um, or traditionally with vendor advocacy, you, you are taking a percentage of the selling agent's commission. Um, and before you go there, you know, everyone sort of says, well, you're going to be charging the client more. They're going to be paying more because the agent's splitting the fee. Um, I certainly think that there would have been cases where that is absolutely the, what goes on. Um, however, if we're involved with vendor advocacy, we actually deal with the vendor and the, the selling agent deals with the buyer. So we are eliminating 50% of their job. Um, and we do that to make sure that the vendor is getting the protection that they want. The agent deals with us as the vendors, you know, the conduit or the, the, the person sort of protecting them for one of a you know, better explanation. And then the agent can focus on selling the property and dealing with the buyers. So there's tip, there is no increase in the fee. Um, and the agents are quite happy to split it because A, they're going to be standing on a door and meeting more sellers and B, it's 50 or 60% of something they wouldn't have. Yeah, right. And, and Lauren, I guess the, the question in my mind, if you sort of, uh, I think you mentioned a moment ago, you know, this whole thing really few has been going for 13 years. Mm. If we think about the evolution of the big platforms, the domain and REA and groups like that, how, how different is what you do today compared to then, given the information that's out there and available to people kind of off the street these days? Oh, okay, so I, and this is another thing that people talk about. So I'm, a big thing I'm, I'm about at the moment is that experience matters. So if you are using a buyer's agent, you know, it, just, it does not matter if you've got some brilliant, you know, Instagram account, unless you've got experience, you're adding no value, right? You've got to be able to negotiate. You've got to be able to understand the nuances of how a vendor's psyche works to be able to know how you're going to get your client the best deal. You've got to have great connections to be able to open doors. Um, you've got to have agents like you because if they don't like you, they're not going to want to deal with you. Um, but there is a hell of a load of, lot of information. I would say that um, I rarely compete with competitors in the industry. I'm often competing with a client, making a decision whether they do it themselves. Um, there is a load of information out there, but it's algorithms. No one can tell you, you know, you, when you're pricing property, it's about um, supply and demand, the way it's been marketed, who's coming to the door, um, understanding how you could buy it, whether you can buy it on market or off market and knowing the value. Because if we use the algorithms that are supplied by realestate.com, no one would buy a property. So Scott and I were having a bit of a chat yesterday about the, the chicken and egg scenario of mm. what came first, buyer advocacy or rent roll. But you said uh, initially that you, you started off the business with an investor focus. So with yeah. that in mind, did you always intend to do the property management piece as well? Or yeah. did it just kind of evolve? Um, no, actually, initially starting the business, no, I wasn't going to do property management. I'd been a property manager and I knew what that involved. However, um, 
I started during the GFC and it was really bloody tough. So, um, and I had clients that wanted to work with me from property management and I thought, well, I can do both. So ultimately I did and we grew the rent roll organically um, and it was, it was the, the best way of growing because the clients we had, you know, handpicked, we'd handpicked the properties with them. They were all good quality. They were investment grade. Um, and we had built up this great relationship. So then managing those properties was a pleasure, not, um, not the difficulty. That, yeah, not a pain. Um, and, and I can say, I mean, we've subsequently purchased rent rolls, which I would never do again. You know, if I compare the two, the you know the organic growth, particularly from if you're buying these properties for them, they're your clients. They they you connect. They they're your people, <laughs> and so looking after them is much easier. So just um, t- tell me about your business's structure then. Like mm. how many people do you have, and what are the different roles that they do? Because it sounds like a really fascinating kind of mix of things. Yeah. Um, so there's about 18 of us in total now. Wow. Um, and we're broken down. So there's an, a buyer's agency team <clears throat> and that's a couple of buyer's agents and some support staff. But um, And then there's property management, which has got a head of department, um, property managers. They've all got VAs, um, remote VAs to sort of help them um, you know, with administrative tasks. And we've got a full-time lease, well, two full-time leasing consultants now um, to help get, because certainly with the way the market is, we, we need it. Um, and then we've also got a division of the arm that's called Infolio Projects, which we, uh, everything we do is purely property-based. So um, our projects division is not off the plan or new, if that's what it sounds like. It's actually <laughs> looking after clients who um, want us to help them um, consult on a renovation or a refurbishment and no, not overcapitalizing and sort of helping them bring together good trades and overseeing it. A lot of our clients are time poor, really busy people. And um, we know how much they should and shouldn't spend on an investment to get the best return. So um, that's another part of the business that we, we have a strong focus on with now too. Scott and I really encourage businesses to think about ancillary or adjacent revenue streams. And I guess I'm thinking about, and this is kind of going to be a double barrel question. Do you think a buyer advocacy type service can work in a traditional real estate agency or would clients perceive that there's kind of a conflict um, dealing with someone under the same roof? Really good question. And there's absolutely a conflict because you cannot look after both parties. You can't, it, it, you know, okay. I, I mean, I've thought about this ad nauseum, um, because yeah, it's great to have a revenue other uh, revenue streams. I feel very, very strongly that you've got to be good at, you can't be great at everything, you know? Um, and it feels a bit greedy to me when people are trying to take a clip from all sides. Um, but I'll give you an example. Um, you've got a real estate agency who has got a buyer's agency firm. There's, a, you're looking after a seller someone wants to buy the property, your buyer's agent looks after that buyer, who's protected? Who's getting the best price? I'm supposed to get you the lowest price. They're supposed to get you the highest price. It just doesn't make sense. And I feel like it is fraught with danger. Um, Yeah, yeah, I just can't see how there could be winners. And if you're suggesting that your clients can't buy your properties, if you're a good agent... (laughs) you're not serving them well either. 
Let's wind back the clock a little bit about, I think I just wanted to discuss briefly a bit of a challenge that we find a lot of people encounter and that is when they start doing their property management stuff, kind of that transition or taking the leap to putting on your, uh, your first mm. team member. So can you kind of talk us through a bit of your thought process around that and when you knew it was the right time or did you know it was the right time? Did you just uh, decide to commit and, and go? Um, oh, that's a really good question. When did I... I think I got, I think I got it up to about 150 properties and, and I was doing, you know, sort of everything else as well. And it was really just a matter of, I couldn't do, and it's where it's how I've based all of my decisions on growth is when I feel like I'm so stretched that I'm not doing things well. Um, I'm a, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And so I've got a high, the level of service that I want to be offered is fairly unwavering and so I'm my own worst critic. So if I feel like someone has to follow me up for an email or they've got to ring me a few times before they get a phone call back, then I know I'm just not on top of my game. So that's typically when I look to put on more staff. It's different in property management now um, because they are handling smaller portfolios with more support than I did. I looked after 300 properties in my day, Yikes. 350. Yeah. And that was at two different companies. So that's how it used to be. Whereas now they've got a hundred to 150 properties with a full-time VA plus a leasing consultant and someone who looks after new business, but it's changed. It is so tough, so tough, but I grow when I know I'm feeling stretched. So can I ask then that, that pressure that you've noticed and that change that you've seen across the industry, uh, where does that all kind of go next? Because I mean, we've just seen a bunch of new legislation yeah. come through and there's some more changes that have come through in, uh, in October, particularly in our shared mm. state of Victoria. Mm. What are you kind of seeing there in terms of that next step for the industry? Is it getting worse or are we seeing some sort of light at the end of the tunnel? It is definitely getting worse. Um, I've never... Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I'm sitting here and we, okay. I'll explain. We, when COVID, we closed our office down and it was the first time I ever made my phone number available on the website. Cause I thought I have to make sure people can reach me if they need to. The kinds of calls I would get from tenants and landlords, um, the amount of pressure, if a property manager doesn't call them back within a number of hours, they're, they're abused by their property manager. They're threatened by, to, they're threatened by the tenants and, and landlords. You know, you're not calling me back fast enough. You're not doing this fast enough. I'm going to take you to VCAT. I'm going to do the, I've never seen anything like it. Light at the end of the tunnel, the, the amount of work this new legislation has put on will mean, to my mind, that any decent agent will not be able to absorb the cost and they will start increasing their fees. So hopefully we will now start getting paid what we are due for a service that has the, the, the requirements of it have gone up and the fees have gone down and it's not sustainable. And do you think, um, do you think some of the changes that are happening with, you know, the technology products are around, are they doing enough to make the role kind of manageable and survivable given some of those issues? Or do you um, think it's a case that we've, we've got to kind of up our game in terms of supporting the industry? Yeah, I think we've got to up our game. Uh, we've got everything here. I mean, we're really forward thinking in relation to if, if we need something or something's new and there's technology that's going to make the job easier, we've got it. The fact of the matter is, or what I'm seeing very strongly at the moment, is that tenants and landlords still want to get on the phone and talk to us. 
So it's, it's labor intensive, no matter what the software you've got, they don't want you to just shoot them through an email. They want you to get on the phone. It's funny, Brock and I have had many conversations about mm. the idea of template responses to just about everything. And you kind of go, Oh guys, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah. Just get on the phone. <laughs> just get on the phone. Yeah. Um, so tell me something. And where, where do you find your clients? Like it's a great big market and it's kind of fragmented. How do you find all of these incredible people to then connect and do business with? Yeah, look, I'm lucky enough that now for me personally, most of my clients, in fact, you know, 90% or more would be repeat or referral, direct referral. Um, but I built that initially by um, relationships with real estate agents, um, uh, financial planners and mortgage brokers. So they would be the, the, the largest referral network that I have. Um, so I've got really good relationships with real estate agents and a lot of people think that that's an interesting concept, but they sell, I buy. You know, I always say this, you know, when you're buying a property, that real estate agent doesn't help you buy, they're helping it sell for the vendor. Yep. So, um, you know, if they meet a client, you know, a buyer who's a little bit tricky or they can see needs some help, they'll often ring me and say, look, you know, we've got someone who I think you could look after. And, you know, likewise, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good relationship to have. Um, mortgage brokers, you know, they don't make their money until their clients buy a property. So they've got quite a vested interest to um, send clients to us. We do do um, SEO and we do, um, I've got social media and it's funny, like that's starting to produce clients. I guess people starting to look at the, I never used it for that. It was more to create, um, I guess, a connection, people to see who we are and a bit of our personality, but that's now making people contact us and we're converting clients from that now, which we haven't, you know, probably in former years. Um, but repeat and referral is definitely, you know, do the job well, you'll get more customers. I just want to dig into that a little more deeply and I guess at a bit more granular level, because I think uh, a lot of a lot of people start out their, their business and they want to go out there and kind of establish these referral relationships. But I guess the challenge comes with firstly, like how do you actually establish them in the first place? And also what, and I, I hesitate to use the word maintenance, but how do you maintain those relationships? So I guess at the end of the day, it's, there's a whole lot more to it than simply the phone rings and someone says, Hey, Lauren, we got someone for you to look after. So I guess what's the, less than glamorous legwork or, or relationship building stuff that goes to, to building that sort of pipeline. Do you know what? It is, it is bloody hard. <laughs> I'm about to onboard a new buyer's agent and I sort of said to him, you know, it can look easy. It's really hard. If you're trying to create new relationships, most of these people have got them, right? They've already got them. And I know I get people ringing me about it. It's like, I don't have time to take on someone else. That's my, you know, it's really hard. But what I sort of say to them is instead of saying, um, don't promise that you're going to be able to just say, I, I want to see if I can offer something for your clients that it adds value. So getting in front of them is the hardest thing. So I would say if I was giving someone advice on how to do it, you go to your friends and your family and you ask who their broker is, who their planner is and who they're more, you know, who they're dealing with and ask for a direct invite in to meet them. Because if you go in cold, you've got half a chance if that. So if you got your mum and dad and said, look, who's your financial planner? And they sent an email to their financial planner and said, look, meet my son or my daughter. They're getting into the industry. Would you give them five minutes? Just getting in that door is going to be an opportunity. So any opening from a, a direct link that you've got, it doesn't have to be a customer that you've had. 
um, that's going to get you in the door. But I'm so like I dedicate Fridays most most Fridays to kind of trying to network and, and build my relationships. So like next week I've got a seven a.m. breakfast with a guy that um, has a finance and planning firm in Hawthorne that I want to go and see and make sure that I you know say hi and stay in front of. If you're not in their face, they will forget you. It's as simple as that. Next Friday. Um, I've got, I've organized a lunch where I think we've got 22 of our favorite real estate agents, you know, we're shouting them a, a lunch and it's just, it's not about business. It's like, let's just get a group of people together that we really like and we like doing business with. And, um, you know, it's a small investment in the relationship. Ultimately we can do, you know, 22 of them in one lunch. <laughs> um, but I make a conscious effort to connect and stay connected um and it's not a it's not easy and it's a lot of work but if you are working with people and you build referral relationships with people that you like it doesn't it's not as arduous it's just hard to get in the door in the first place so that's why you use your connections to do it it's a really good point you raise around the fact that um people generally already have their own pre-existing networks and i think the the error uh, a lot of people make when they're starting out is thinking that it has to be kind of an all or nothing approach. Like I want all of your business, like send it all to me. Whereas, um, you know, I was taught quite a few years ago by uh, a person who was pretty savvy in this space that all you need is one and that kind of, and that kind of builds momentum. So it's like, Hey, I don't want all of your business. I appreciate that you've actually probably got a network, but hey, just give me one. Or if for whatever reason your current person can't handle it, then just think of me, I'll, I'll take the overflow work. And so, can I then circle back to the uh, the repeat business you get out of your existing customer base and kind of ask the same question? Like, are you? The end result is that someone rings up and they've got someone for you to help, and that's amazing. But in terms of the ongoing maintenance of your existing customer base, are you doing any sort of structured work in that space, or is it just mm -hmm. a, a flow on result of providing really good service? Um I'm getting better at doing the structured stuff. Um, so how would I explain what I do now? Well, we've recently um, got a bit more sophisticated with our CRMs. Um, but I actually, so that there are certain things that, that, that all of our clients get. So we, I like meaningful contact rather than um, contact for contact's sake. So um, we do uh, what I think is a, a really good solid quarterly newsletter where it's, um, it's, it's, I'm not a fence sitter. So I, I give them an opinion. So it's not, a, you know, the bit of, you know, benign vanilla information <laughs> that everyone else wants to tell you about the I'm market. Watch, I'm watching you try and politely <laughs> explain that one. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I mean, it's like... I'll, some I'll, of it's some of it's so pretty scared junk. to have an opinion these yeah. days. They really are. And I sort of think what is... I say to... My whole theory is if you are buying someone a property and they are paying you money to do it, they do not want you to sit on the fence. Do not be a fence sitter. Give them an opinion. They're paying for your advice. And you're not going to get it right all the time. But if they come to you and say, what do you think about this? You go, I don't know. It looks all right to me. Like, where's what the value? What do you think? <laughs> um, so I make sure that we give meaningful content, whether people agree with it or not. It's at least it's giving in a bit of opinion um, and some good data, but not lots of, you know, and, I'm, and I pivot it to my market. We also try and do, well, we, we were successfully doing, we called them property and poke nights where we'd invite people into the Zen Den and we do have, um, you know, you know, 25 clients where we'd sort of, you know, depending on which market we were trying to deal with, but they were existing clients. We're working on our existing clients. Um, 
where we'd get them in and we'd have some interesting speakers and talks. It's, it's an hour. All of our people are busy. Come in for an hour, have a poke bowl, have a spritzer, go home and you can still <laughs> do your family stuff. What else do we do? And then, um, and then we've got, I, I always call my clients when on the anniversary of their property, you know, um, and if they have a baby or they do something, I'll, I'll typically know about it and I'll make sure that I connect. Um, so little things like that. I think my takeaway of the day so far is meaningful contact. Like I just think there's that contact for contact's sake is something that people try and do to build a relationship, but you've kind of got to have a point and a purpose and you've got to convey some value in that contact. Otherwise it's actually not adding value at all for the customer. Can I, can I ask then? So we've got a lot of property managers that uh, hopefully listen to this podcast. Mm. What's your advice to them in terms of doing some of the things you're doing? Where do they get started? So their, their background is property management. How do we start to kind of widen the scope of what they focus on learning from someone like yourself? Um, well, I started in property management and I actually think a property manager's skills fundamentally builds them up to be better at anything, whether it's in buying or selling. Totally agree. Um, so ultimately, if I had someone sit in front of me who said that they were a property manager and they wanted to start in advocacy, they'd be ahead of anyone else. To wow. My mind. Yeah, wow. Your negotiation skills, your level of dealing with people, managing time management is going to be on another level because you you trained that way. Um, I think that it's shadowing. I think understanding there's a, there's glamour. There seems to be glamour to sales or buying outside of other roles. That I guess it might seem that way, but the reality is it's really hard and it looks easier than what it is. So I think that. If someone was thinking about making the move, I'd really recommend that they do some just shadowing. Speak to, you know, speak to a buyer's agent or a selling agent or whoever it is that they think if that's where the avenue they're wanting to shadow them. Do it, take some, take a week off work, take it out of your time, shadow them for a week and see what it's like working your weekends that way. Um, because that'll tell you whether you, you really cut for it or not. Um, because it, it reality is quite different to, to how it all sounds and looks. <laughs> I think there's also value there for people who are looking to continue to grow their property management business in doing some of that sort of networking and, and advocacy and even that shadowing because I think um, quite often people can be a really good property manager but where they struggle is in that going out and building the relationships and understanding how to grow their business. So whether or not they're thinking of a career path, I think there's definitely benefit in, in reaching out and expanding your network in that way. Well, I, I actually, with our property managers, one of their KPIs is to have a coffee um a coffee, a fortnight with a client, actually face wow. to face. That's a good KPI. Yeah. I've, I've never heard that. That's yeah. awesome. Reach well, out. I just thought um, we're seeing this huge turnover of property management staff and um, and also clients feeling like they just have emails and they don't know who they're dealing with. So I just said it's a KPI. You have to go through your rent roll and just, just go, to, go to them, have a coffee with them, meet them face to face, build the relationship. It's this further opportunity there as well that the more the property manager finds out about what's going on with that customer at this point in time. And you made the point earlier about knowing people's anniversary, if they just had a baby, maybe they got a new puppy. I mean, that's more stuff that you can then turn into future relationship points or even needs like, you know, maybe they're expanding their family and perhaps there's an opportunity then to, to flick them back for, for more buyer advocacy stuff if they need to upsize, downsize or do any of that stuff. Yeah. It's also like, if you, if you, like I'm in my mind, I'm trying to work out the economics of this. So, if you think about what you pay a property manager, 
And if you think about the time it takes to do that, let's say for argument's sake, it's $50 mm -hmm. to have them not do other work and sit down and have this coffee. The typical management on a rent roll, somewhere between sort of three, three and a half thousand dollars in asset value. How many of those, like you, you can have a lot of those conversations that do nothing. You only need one to result in a saved management or a new management. And this makes so much sense. That is, that's crazy. What a great, I've never heard anything like it. I want to, um, I want to finish up with a question that we kind of asked everybody. Mm. If, if um, Lauren today could go back to Lauren on day one of this whole incredible journey and give us some advice, what would you give her? Oh, learn how to read a balance sheet and do numbers a bit better. It <laughs> <laughs> is very practical. Yeah. Yeah. I've had, I've had to, I've, I'm, I mean, I am appalling with numbers and I struggle, but knowing your numbers inside out when running a business and understanding profitability and, you know, it, <laughs> it's taken me 13 years. But I'm there. <laughs> Love it. That's all for today. If you'd like to learn more about Infolio, you can head to infolio.com.au. Alternatively, you can look for Lauren Staley on LinkedIn. And my hot tip, check out one of the best Instagram accounts going around, uh, which is at Infolio Property. So amazing little, uh, little channel that they've got there too. Thank you for listening. And thanks for your time and wisdom today, Lauren. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me.